Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in again to America Explained. This week's episode is a little bit unusual. It's an interview that I gave to another podcast here in the Netherlands, the International Studies Student Association podcast at Leiden University, in which I talked about US relations with China and its goals in the Asia-Pacific or what we're now supposed to call the Indo-Pacific. I talked a little bit more about that deal that took place recently between the US and Australia and the UK and placed it in its um, larger strategic context in the region. I thought this was an, an interesting interview. I got some great questions from the host, Edmund Flett, who's a former student of mine. I hope you enjoy listening to this one. And two weeks from now, we'll be back with another Original America Explained episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 39th ESA podcast. This week, we're going to sink beneath the surface of a recent security development that has managed to unite both France and China in furious condemnation. On the 15th of September, the United States, Australia and the United Kingdom blindsided the world by announcing a new security cooperation and technology sharing agreement to be known as AUKUS. We will be taking the deal on its own terms in its own arena, the Indo-Pacific. In whose interest is this agreement? What does it change? Will it succeed in deterrence or will it further imperil the precarious peace in this region, which has fast become the world's main arena of contestation? Here to help answer these big questions is the faculty's very own Dr. Andrew Gorthold, an expert on US foreign policy, history and culture. How's it going, Andrew? Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, no problem at all. Glad to be here. Are you glad to be back teaching in person? Yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's really nice to be able to make that connection with with people again. You know, I think uh, been just there were people who I never even met. You know, in person, I only saw yeah, through course. a screen, and you can't really have a real relationship with your students that way. So I am really happy to be back doing it in person, and I know the students are too. As one of your former students, I can say that the experience of being in your class was fantastic, regardless of whether digital or in person. Well, thank you. Okay, so to begin, what would you say that the United States sees as its core strategic interests in the Indo-Pacific region? To answer that question, I would point to two phrases that are often used um, in America when they're discussing the region. The first is the idea of a free and open Indo-Pacific, and the second is the idea of strategic competition with China. The first one of those ideas, the free and open Indo-Pacific, is really about these kind of broad goals that America has for what the region should look like. So they want it to be a region that's open to international trade, you know, relatively open to free trade. They want it to be a region that doesn't have exclusive spheres of influence by particular powers. Thinking back, for instance, to the run up to World War II, when Japan established its own sphere of influence and empire in the Asia Pacific. They don't want that to happen. They want to see it remain a region of independent sovereign nations. They don't want to see war break out in the region. So, you know, and this is linked to these, the desire to maintain trade openness and, and open economic exchange. So they don't want conflicts in the region. And they generally want to see international law upheld there as well. And why do they care about these things? You know, so why does the US want this free and open Indo-Pacific? The reasons are mostly economic. You know, there's about 1.9 trillion in two-way trade between the United States and the Indo-Pacific. About a quarter of the world's shipborne trade passes through, through the South China Sea, this kind of contested body of water just to the south of China. In general, the Indo-Pacific is identified as the fastest growing and then, you know, hence the most important part of the world's economy in the current century. Clinton, Hillary Clinton in 2016, I think it was, called the coming century the Pacific century. And America wants to shape that century by shaping the kind of rules and norms that operate in the region. This 
is complicated then by the second phrase that we often use heard by American policymakers, which is the idea of strategic competition with China. So China is seen as the biggest threat to the free and open Indo-Pacific, and as well as a potential peer competitor for the United States, actually probably a competitor unlike America has ever seen, because even at its height, the Soviet Union's economy never came close to matching the economy of the United States, whereas China's economy, by some measures, you know, already has or will very soon surpass the size of the United States. So China is seen as a real threat, not just in this region, but to US interests around the world as well. So the US is intensely focused on the military balance in the Indo-Pacific between itself and China, ensuring that China is not able to militarily threaten this free and open region by establishing hegemony over its neighbors or seizing control of the South China Sea and, and all of that trade that flows through it. At the same time, America needs allies to act as platforms for its military assets in the region in order to try to contain China. So Japan, South Korea, and as we're discussing here, Australia, right? And it wants to protect those allies from Chinese coercion, keep them within the American alliance system and keep them safe from China. The final complication to this whole thing and, and where these two phrases really come together is that a lot of that 1.9 trillion in two-way trade is with China. So this is another reason in which China is, is a competitor unlike any that the U.S. has seen in the past, because the U.S. has this deep and complex and important economic relationship with China that's important to the U.S. economy on its own terms. And it doesn't want to see that disappear. It doesn't want to lose that economic relationship, but it has to maintain that while at the same time following this policy strategic competition with China. And that's where things get very complicated. This agreement seems to me really about creating balance and coalition against China. One thing I'd struggle to get my head around is that there is already a very complex patchwork of uh, United States alliances in this region. We've got the Five Eyes intelligence sharing agreements, we've got the Quad. I wonder if you could help me differentiate the new agreement, AUKUS, from the existing alliances that the United States has created in the region. Yeah, so after World War II, when the US created this multilateral security framework in Europe, which was NATO, in the Asia-Pacific, they took a different approach. They developed not multilateral arrangements, but instead a series of bilateral agreements, mostly anyway, bilateral security relationships with Japan, with South Korea, with Taiwan, then also with Australia and New Zealand. As strategic competition with China has hotted up, the US has both doubled down on those bilateral relation relationships, but it's also tried to create new multilateral relationships as well. So the Quad, which you just mentioned, is kind of the most prominent of these. That's this group of countries in the Asia, I, I keep calling it the, the Asia Pacific, that's what they used to call it back in my day, but we have to call it Indo-Pacific now, but okay. In the Indo-Pacific, it's a group of four countries, the US, India, Japan, and Australia, who share this interest in the containment of China. Because AUKUS is a development and kind of a deepening of America's relationship with one of those countries, with Australia, I would really view this as a constituent part of that Quad relationship. And what the Quad relationship is all about is conducting military exercises, engaging in joint military preparation, and engaging in diplomatic coordination 
in an attempt to constrain China, discourage China from following these, what America views as disruptive ambitions in the Indo-Pacific. So what AUKUS is, is basically a deepening of the military relationship between the US and Australia, and, and the UK kind of plays this subsidiary, but not very important role in that as well. What AUKUS is going to mean is, firstly, the thing that, that people are talking about the most is the nuclear submarines that Australia is, is now going to receive the technology to develop. Now, that crucially doesn't, doesn't mean submarines with nuclear warheads. It means submarines powered by nuclear reactors, but they're much more powerful than conventional submarines. And we're also going to see much more cycling and basing of American forces in Australia. So basically, it's like an additional platform in the region, although, you know, actually Australia is quite far away from the real kind of potential battlegrounds of the Indo-Pacific, which are in China's immediate kind of maritime hinterland. But anyway, it is, it's a somewhat closer place to base US military ships and planes and troops just to have more of a presence in the region. So it's kind of part of that quad strategy. Now, the other organization that you mentioned is the Five Eyes. The Five Eyes is really a completely different beast. Five Eyes is an intelligence sharing agreement, which basically grew out of the fact that at the end of World War II, Britain was this declining imperial power. You know, it was no longer going to be the world's superpower, but it still had an awful lot of real estate and a lot of diplomatic links and a lot of intelligence links all around the world, particularly in the Indo-Pacific. And the US basically got together with the UK and the white dominions, like the Commonwealth countries in the Asia Pacific and said, okay, you have a lot of intelligence to offer us because you're present in this region. You've been there for centuries. You know it really well. And where the, the rising superpower, like the new kid on the block, we're going to have this massive intelligence network as well. And we can get together and basically share, you know, share intelligence information, and that's going to benefit all of us. So the Five Eyes has been in existence for a really long time. Time. There have actually been some, what I found quite strange, efforts to change its role slightly recently. So there was this controversy where the Five Eyes countries, which in the past have just kind of shared information with one another behind the scenes, but they actually started issuing joint communiques as the Five Eyes countries to condemn Chinese behavior in the Indo-Pacific. And New Zealand saw this and said, actually, we don't want to be part of this kind of new role for Five Eyes. We don't want it to be an organization that speaks out and kind of gets us in trouble by making these statements. We just want it to remain this kind of secretive intelligence sharing organization. So I think that kind of showed that there's, there's limits to what Five Eyes can be. And so we should look more at the quad as the organization through which the US is trying to contain China and, and AUKUS is hence kind of a constituent part of that quad strategy. So if the United States is relying on very much uh, an allied and balancing strategy against China in this region, I wonder if regarding the place of the UK in this agreement, there might have been a sense that the France is already embedded in the region due to its vast uh, maritime and, uh, and island territories in the region. And so France can really be relied on to continue to be strategically present in the Indo-Pacific. It doesn't seem to have much choice. Whereas the UK, um, perhaps there's an element calling the, uh, the bluff of global Britain and actually embedding the United Kingdom militarily in this region. What would you think of that? Yeah, I, I, think, I think that could be an element of it. You know, as you say, France has some interests in the region and they're not going anywhere. You know, those French islands and the people that live on them aren't going anywhere. So France is going to have to remain 
in theory, committed to, to defending those islands. But I think also that it's the case that for so many European countries, their involvement and commitment to the Indo-Pacific is always going to be dependent on many other variables, even in the case of France, I think. Because even though France has this, this territory and these kind of several million citizens in the Indo-Pacific, you can well foresee a time when that becomes more of a liability to France to any, and, and to France as an American ally than anything else. Because I look at those islands and their citizens and I see some place that the Chinese can apply coercion to. And actually, the French probably can't do that much about it, to be honest, right? Because France is never going to have the kind of military power in the Indo-Pacific that's capable of standing up to China. So I well see that those islands could become a target of Chinese coercion and France could be open to a kind of blackmail an economic embargo, for instance, or even a mil military embargo or blockade in, in the event of, of an actual shooting war in the Indo-Pacific. But then I look at Australia, and Australia has so much more at stake in this region than France does. And I think this was mainly about Australia and, and, and secondarily about Britain and about getting Britain involved in, in the region. So as you say, you know, following Brexit, there's this kind of global Britain idea in the UK that we're going to um, continue to have interests all over the world and defend those interests. And the UK has a Indo-Pacific strategy now because it wants to be useful to, to Washington. And I think, you know, that because of the long-standing kind of historic and cultural ties between the UK and the US, that is the most, you know, the, the in many ways, the closest bilateral relationship the US has is with the UK. But I think the UK, especially in cooperation with Australia, because there's a cultural affinity between all of those three nations, is more of a kind of stable, long-term basis for an American alliance in the Indo-Pacific than France would be. Because I easily see France changing its mind or getting distracted or been vulnerable to Chinese coercion. So, so I do think that locking Britain into the region was kind of an added bonus to this, but it was mostly about Australia and locking Australia into the Western alliance and, and kind of this anti-China coalition. In contrast to New Zealand, which is, uh, should we say, taking a slightly softer line with regards to China, and, and I think you just outlined how that played out with regards to the Five Eyes taking a more assertive stance against China. I think the difficulty with Australia is 31% of its global trade is with China. The, the French islands there may be a strategic liability in the future, but then again, so is a full third of Australian trade. Do you think the United States is hoping that Australia will be scaling down its bilateral trade with China over time? I think that, that you know, that's obviously an outcome that America would prefer. How realistic that is, I'm, I'm not sure. And I mean, you know, really this, what was sent by Washington to, to really embrace Australia and in a way to change Australia's mind, because until quite recently, there was this idea in Australia that they basically didn't have to choose between their economic dependence on China and this alignment with, you know, geostrategic alliance with the Western countries. And you still have very prominent um, political actors in Australia who are actually quite critical of AUKUS. So, for instance, um, former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd gave a speech that's really quite critical of, of this agreement. And as you say, you know, the, the main problem that Australia faces is its long running, you know, this tension between its economic dependence on China, which is the main market for its exports, and its geopolitical alignment with the Anglosphere. And I think that Australians do feel mostly aligned with the idea of the free and open Indo-Pacific. They feel cultural and, you know, let's be frank, racial similarities with 
the, with Anglosphere countries and their distrustful of China, their distrustful of China's political system. And they are worried about China's growing power. So I think that if this was purely about kind of their hearts rather than their heads, they would definitely align with the Anglosphere. And what you're seeing here is that the US is really trying to kind of appeal to their heads as well, you know, to kind of make this big comprehensive offer to Australia that we will bring you further into the bosom of our alliance. We will provide you with this technology that's going to be really necessary and useful for you to defend yourself from potential Chinese economic coercion in the future and to contribute to this broader containment strategy against China. There's a little bit of a risk that we we kind of look at AUKUS and we say, oh, wow, you know, that's it now. This was a huge deal. Australia's position is settled forevermore. I would just see this more actually as kind of one step in an unfolding process. And I wouldn't at all rule out the possibility that a future Australian prime minister is going to take the country in quite a different direction, right? And actually not want to remain committed to the Anglosphere, you know, and, and is going to th- ultimately think that their country's long-term economic interests are going to rely on appeasing China. As you say, finding alternative markets for Australian exports would be a big step in the right direction. And we're probably going to see, you know, we are seeing to some extent an unfolding process of economic decoupling of, of Australia from China simply because China has started to deploy increasingly economic coercion against Australia and forcing Australia to find alternative markets for its exports. I feel like Britain is learning in the post-Brexit environment. Geography matters a lot for trade. And there's only so far that that process can go, I think, without having a fairly significant negative impact on Australia's economic competitiveness and hence its living standards. So that's the, that's the problem that Australia faces in the future. And I definitely wouldn't take this as the final word on it. It seems over the past year, at some point, and we don't know exactly when, Australia decided there needs to beef up their security strategy and and concluded that conventional diesel-electric submarines, which they were due to receive from the French arms industry, were insufficient. What I would get a bit speculative, I really wonder if the context for that is China's extremely forceful wolf-warrior diplomacy, should we say, in response particularly to Australia calling for a COVID origins inquiry and the deterioration of relations with Beijing. As far as I'm aware, there still aren't ambassadors from either party in, in the other states. Well, I wonder if that provides a context to increasing Australian anxiety. This is one of the reasons for that increased Chinese economic coercion against Australia, as you say, you know, it, it, part of it was due to Australia's really aggressive call for a, a COVID origins um, investigation. And I think just in general, that over the last couple of years, when we've seen what China's been doing in Hong Kong, especially, that there's just a great deal of increased anxiety and distrust of China all over the Western world, but particularly in regional countries that see their interests as opposed to China and and in the US. So China had for a long time this strategy of biding its time and not showing its strength. I, I forget which Chinese leader came up with that phrase, but it was basically this idea that we're not going to throw our weight around too much because we risk creating a balancing coalition against ourselves. If we show our strength too quickly, we'll scare people and they'll essentially attempt to strangle us in the cradle. They won't let us grow into the powerful country that we can one day be. China, I think largely because of its, or at least in part because of its perception that 
the US is declining much faster than Chinese policymakers expected, that this is what they think, they have become less cautious recently and they've become more aggressive. And that's causing worries all over the Indo-Pacific. Now, there's two ways that you can respond to those worries. You could say, okay, well, you know, the, the game's up and, and China's the new kid on the block and actually the US is declining. So we really just need to kind of go along with China and appease them. Or you can say, well, this aggression is now frankly becoming too much for us. It's actually showing to us that we're in this weak position, this dependent position, we don't want to be in that position. So we're going to try not to appease China, but to, to fight back and resist and find alternative arrangements to, to secure our interests. And the US is really kind of banking on nations taking the latter, latter course. And you know, so for instance, there's now talk of creating a, a quad plus so not just the four um, initial nations of the Quad, but also bringing in um, South Korea and Vietnam and um, even New Zealand attended a first meeting of, of the Quad Plus. So this is a time of flux in these alliance systems in the Indo-Pacific. And what we're seeing with AUKUS is just one move on that chessboard and, and the game's going to go on for a long time still. The most flashy part of the agreement is, of course, the eight nuclear submarines. And maybe we could talk about those for a bit. From what I can tell, they're due to enter service probably around the end of the 2030s. My understanding is that British and American submarines rely on nuclear fuel enriched to a weapons-grade level. Do you think there's any grounds for a non-proliferation concern here? Apart from Australia itself, might this encourage an actor such as Iran to reach nuclear weapons capability through a submarine backdoor? Yeah, I mean... It's a good question, and I'm not so sure. I don't really have particular non-proliferation concerns about this because I think, firstly, that Iran is going to do what Iran wants to do anyway, kind of invoking this as evidence of why they should be allowed to do that would be just a, a rhetorical strategy. I mean, Australia is, is not under this agreement going to develop a civil nuclear program. It's going to receive the nuclear material um, from its allies. This is actually one of the points on which Kevin Rudd criticized the agreement because he said basically this makes Australia really dependent for this kind of crucial maritime capability on the UK and the US so that he this, saw this as a weakness of the agreement. But I think that, that the nuclear material that's, that's passed to Australia to, to be placed in these submarines is going to be safely guarded. You know, it's it's material that's used by the UK and the US already. So I don't really worry about it falling into the wrong hands. And, and I don't really worry about proliferation concern because I think ultimately that countries like Iran will, their development of nuclear capabilities or decisions not to develop nuclear capabilities, they're just based on their assessment of their own interests, not really what happens in Australia. That's a great relief to hear. So the American think tank, the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, has uh, calculated that diesel electric submarines could remain on station for only 11 days in the South China Sea, which I think in terms of the kind of operations that might be imagined against China is not really long at all, uh, whereas a nuclear submarine could stay for more than two months. Is it the longevity that nuclear submarines can stay out in the field? Is, is that the key advantage? Or I must admit, I don't know about the weapons actually contained on the subs or other technologies. Maybe you could fill me in on some of that. So it's about a couple of things. It's not particularly about the, the weapon capabilities, but it's about longevity on station and it's about remaining undetected okay. because diesel submarines have to rise to the surface and very frequently and then go back down again. Nuclear submarines don't. So they can remain underwater for a really long time. 
This is particularly important for a couple of reasons. So firstly, because in any kind of conflicts for control of the South China Sea, submarines are going to be really, really important in that, in that conflict. They're very, very hard to detect. So they're very good at tracking enemy ships and tracking enemy submarines. But another really key part of the reason why submarine capabilities are important is because China is developing very impressive capabilities for attacking or at least holding at risk, which is the military term that just basically means that they can't operate safely and they're at risk of being destroyed. So China is, is developing capabilities for holding at risk American surface ships. So increasingly, China is going to establish this envelope around its territory and perhaps throughout the South China Sea, quite far out into the South China Sea, where it's perhaps impossible or very, very difficult for American surface ships to operate. Now, if you think how much an aircraft carrier costs, then you think how much a couple of anti-ship ballistic missiles cost. But all it takes to sink a carrier is a few very, very cheap missiles. And China has a lot of those missiles, getting very good at deploying them, getting very good at sending them further away from their shores. So the US is faced with this situation where its ability to project power close to China's shores via surface ships is increasingly being caused, called into question. Submarines will be able to continue to operate beneath the water because they're not susceptible to these kind of anti-ship um, missiles that the Chinese are developing. In the event of, for instance, say, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, if that were to happen 10 years from now, which is kind of a realistic timeline, the US by then might not be capable of getting its surface ships really anywhere near Taiwan to make much of a difference. But these nuclear submarines will be able to operate near Taiwan because they're underwater, they can stay there for a long time, and they can't be detected. So the US is, by this agreement with Australia, it's channeling Australia's defense spending in a direction that is more useful for the US by generating this asset that's most useful to the US in the medium term in, in the Indo-Pacific because of the characteristics that these submarines have. It's interesting to note that Australia would be the only state on the planet to possess no nuclear weapons capability, but to also have, also have nuclear submarines. And just to give a sense of how this might change the strategic balance there, from what I can tell, China has 12 nuclear-powered submarines. And so for China, a population of 1.3 billion to have 12, and Australia, a population of about 20 million to have eight. It really does seem to me to change the strategic balance. But then again, it's going to take two decades until these ships are actually, actually viable and anything could change in two decades. Yeah. And I mean, you know, who knows what capabilities China will have in two decades, but it is the case at the moment that China is particularly weak in its submarine capabilities and its anti-submarine capabilities, precisely because it's been focused on these other types of military technologies, which we call anti-access and area denial, which is sometimes that the acronym is A2 slash AD. These capabilities that are aimed at keeping American surface ships away from China's shores. China's invested really aggressively in that particular type of capability, because right now that's kind of their strategic priority to push back American assets from China's shores and from the South China Sea. But China will also, I'm sure, begin investing more in power projection capabilities. 
more kind of long-range power projection capabilities over the coming decades. And that could indeed involve, you know, more investment in, in, in submarine capabilities and in anti-submarine capabilities as well. Although it seems like this would make a big difference and, and you know, the, the numbers you outlined show that, that that's quite a contrast. You're right, if you look at the population, the number of submarines, the, the amount of time it's going to take for these things to come online means that I'm not really sure, you know, right now that, that we can really say what difference they make to the strategic situation 20 years from now, because there's so many un- other unknowns about that situation. So it may actually end up being the non-submarine capabilities included in the Orca Steel that end up being more immediately relevant strategically in the region. So in the official statement, they said cyber capabilities, artificial intelligence, quantum technologies, and additional undersea capabilities. That's sort of especially detailed, and these are quite sort of flashy, high-tech buzzwords. But it, long-range guided missiles, I think, is, uh, is also included. And is that something that we can expect the Australians to have very soon? If you imagine what a war between the US and China would look like, and of course, we can't completely predict the contours of it, but we can say a few general things. So a war between the US and China is going to be fought in the maritime and the aerial domains. And what's going to be really important for the US is the ability to have safe places from which to shoot airplanes and missiles at China, essentially. So, you know, the US has these capabilities scattered all around the Indo-Pacific. Guam is a particular particular center of, of these capabilities, but China has also been developing um, as part of this A2AD strategy, more and more sophisticated medium and long-range ballistic missile capabilities to the extent that in the event of a conflict, even today, I think Guam would be in, in real trouble, potentially. So for Australia to kind of become a missile platform and a aerial you know, asset platform, fighter jets and bombers, is very significant for the US as well, because it's more real estate, it's more targets that China has to worry about, it's more angles to come at China in the event of a conflict. So I think that those elements are significant. The bits about artificial intelligence and quantum computing, I mean, it's kind of impossible to really know what this means on, you know, on, on the face of it and what those capabilities would be. I take that to mean that the US military and the Australian military are working on their interoperability. So basically, artificial intelligence and quantum computing systems that will tie together American and Australian military assets and mean that in in events of a conflict, they could work together much, much more seamlessly. But it's really a bit hard to know from that communique, you know, what, what is meant by this exactly. Aware that AUKUS is all but explicitly ranged against Chinese interest and expansion in the Indo-Pacific, they've, uh, they've called the agreement extremely irresponsible and that it seriously undermines regional peace and intensifies the arms race. I'm obviously scared that there might be a grain of truth to particularly the latter bit, uh, that it will intensify the arms race. I can hardly see China feeling comfortable with its existing capability when its main rivals in the region are beefing themselves up to this, this degree. So I, honestly, I wonder if that's actually going to be true. We have to think about what is the current military balance in the region and what was already happening before AUKUS? So the current military balance in the region is that the US remains the preponderant military power in the Asia Pacific, but it's by no means completely hegemonic. It's by no means completely supreme. And because of these, and it's been because of Chinese military innovation and research and development and spending 
that the US has found its strategic position eroding, particularly due to these anti-access error denial capabilities that, that I talked about. What we're really seeing here with AUKUS is that the US is trying to find new ways to reestablish and kind of defend its position in the region. So China is, it's been China's growth, China's economic growth, Chinese military growth that has um, begun to upset the balance in the region. And that was, you know, that's going to continue and, and we should expect that to continue. And there's nothing inherently illegitimate about that. You know, countries that, countries that develop an awful lot of economic power naturally translate that into military power and start looking of, of how they can use that military power to defend what they see as their interests in the region. And from China's perspective, it has been relentlessly contained, hemmed in, surveilled by America for an awful long time. And it views this as an affront to its national dignity. And if we take a, you know, a, a kind of realpolitik look at international relations, we can't expect a nation to particularly a powerful nation to, to, to put up with that continued position of subordination in its own region. So Chinese, you know, military development, military spending, that's going to continue. And the, this arms race really takes two to tango. You know, it took China to, to really set off this process. Or if you want to go further back in time, you know, America set off this process establishing itself as the preponderant power in the Asia Pacific during a time when China was undergoing enormous renewal and economic growth and growth in its own power. So I think that there is an arms race in the region that's going to continue. I don't think that it's reasonable to expect that either China or the US is going to unilaterally back down from that process. And, and it is very dangerous. And, and you know we don't know where that's going to end. To wrap up our discussion of the agreement itself, commentators are playing it up as amongst the biggest security shakeups of the recent period. The Economist has called it the most significant international collaboration on defense capability anywhere for decades. It's very, very hyperbolic language. And they've said just occasionally you can see the tectonic plates of geopolitics shifting in front of your eyes. This does seem a little bit hyperbolic to me because I'm not sure it's, it's it hasn't changed the alliance structure in the region. What do you think about that? Would you would you say this is slightly overstated, or do you really think it is as significant? I do think it's overstated. Been um, been close to events like this always increases your perception of their importance, and I guess that that economist statement is based on the idea that Australia has finally and definitively cut this Gordian knot, committed to the Anglosphere, and kind of cut itself off from from China and. I don't consider that a settled matter yet. I think that that's still up for debate and it's going to continue to be debated in Australia in the coming decades. And I mean, you know, just it seems particularly funny to me when we've just seen Australia very dramatically pull out of this agreement with France and embrace a new one with America to imagine that maybe they won't do something like that in the future, right? But they could easily make a dramatic kind of change of course in the future as well. I do consider it, you know, pretty significant. You know, it's a big deepening of the Australian-American alliance for now. And, and, you know, if that continues, then OK, we'll say it's significant. But I think to say it's one of the most significant defence shakeups in decades is, is a little bit of, of an exaggeration because Australia was already part of the quad, was already perhaps leaning a bit in this direction. So, yeah, I think that we can overstate the importance of this. We all want to write articles and make podcasts and discuss stuff. So, you know, we're always 
tempted to, to overstate the importance of things. So I think significant, definitely worth talking about, you know, and I, I think we've covered, um, we, we've used it in this, you know, in this interview as kind of an insight into many, many important, interesting trends in the region. But I don't consider it once in a century realignment or something like that. As a final note, we've done a very good job of avoiding the diplomatic scandal this announcement has been. People have been saying that the relationship between France and the US hasn't been this bad in a very long time, or, or the relationship between France and the UK. And I have to say, actually, I think I think that might be understating. 2003, with the Iraq war, I was a bit too young to remember it personally, directly, but my understanding is there was a big diplomatic spat between France and the UK and the US. This does seem rather more severe. Already, Anthony Blinken has met, I think, with the with the French foreign minister, and you know they've started talking about how to patch things up. I think that this is quite a severe rupture in relations between France and America, and indeed, two thousand and three is definitely the last time that that something this major happened. But I think you know we we have to not understate how serious the rift in 2003 was as well. And it was only really when Barack Obama was elected in 2008 and the US took a dramatic kind of turn away from the unilateral policies that it had been pursuing under Bush that Franco-American relations really got back on track. And I think that it's going to take a while to, in this case as well, to patch things up. And the French will want to use this in a way to try to win concessions and kind of attention from the Americans because they know how important it is to the Biden. Well, or, I mean, we, we all thought that it was important to the Biden administration to appear well-liked by the Western allies. <laughs> the, the fact that they did this in the first place makes me question how much they really are prioritizing that. But I think that, yeah, the, you know, the, the French have the idea that, you know, America's going to want to patch things up. So perhaps they can they can look to get extra concessions and attention and, you know, maybe like a visit by Joe Biden or something like that out of this. Um, and that will be politically useful for, for Macron. So it's a pretty, you know, it is it is a rift. But um, I think it will um, I think it will be fixed in the medium term. And there might be a degree of theater and exaggeration before then. I suppose I wonder if it, it'll be a rift that has actual consequences. If, if Macron is successful in the campaign he's currently launched for European strategic autonomy, it's already resulted in, I, I believe, some kind of arms deal with Greece. I'm afraid I forget the details. But yes, if it, if it does result in the partial militarization of the EU, that will be a concrete outcome of this diplomatic crisis that we can point to. Yeah. So, I mean, if if this is really the thing that pushes the EU to develop strategic autonomy, then that would be a really big deal. But I don't personally see that happening because I just think there's so many barriers to strategic autonomy in the EU. And I think that I've now been hearing people talk about that or the various other things we used to call this before we called it strategic autonomy. I've been listening to people talk about that for decades and it doesn't happen. And I think that if this does have consequences, longer term consequences, then it will be probably in the Indo-Pacific, you know, that I think that this might indeed discourage France from going along with the containment of China. And it will kind of encourage France to continue with this third way approach that they have to, um, 
to relations with China. Now, of course, you know, that's very similar actually to like the goals position towards the US and the Soviet Union in, in the 60s. So, you know, that this, this is kind of maybe the direction that French policy was, was going in anyway. And I'm not sure how much this submarine deal that they had with Australia was really about geopolitics for France as much as it was just about making money for the French defense industry. So I think France has, you know, had anyway this tendency to be um, something of a fair weather ally for the U.S. and the Indo-Pacific, and that is going to have been increased, no doubt, quite significantly by what's just happened. For the listeners, Dr. Gawthorpe has just penned an op-ed for the Australian Institute of International Affairs called AUKUS is a Rude Awakening for Europe. One the continent should have seen coming, uh, where, where you can find uh, detailed thoughts about AUKUS and its implications for the transatlantic relationship. But uh, that's all the questions I've got to, for today, Dr. Gawthorpe. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, no problem at all. I had a really good time. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me.